All right, Jesse, last week's Internet Catfish was a classic love murder cautionary tale. What's the story this week? A perfect on paper marriage goes horribly wrong when one partner disappears and their family suspects the worst of the spouse. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about trust, lust, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can check out our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are just as thrilled as always to shout out and welcome a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome to Richard H., Jamie B., and Duranta R.S., Christy M., Danielle R.V., and Natalie G., Leah K., J.M., and Jody C., Lori S., Caitlin T., and Sydney V., And finally, Eliza B. Welcome, welcome. Thank you guys for being patrons. And thank you just for tuning in today. Uh, We have a case that I did not know a lot about before I jumped into this very well-written book, which is my primary source today, The Surgeon's Wife by Kieran Crowley. And there are some real big twists and turns. And I think that you are going to enjoy today's episode, Andy. I'm so excited. Well. Okay, there's one part you're definitely not going to like, but we'll get to that soon. Sorry. (laughs) Brought you high, and then I brought you low. Now I'm going to be very nervous the whole time. (laughs) I'm going to trigger warn you guys after I get through the intro, but um, the high to the low goes right into the intro, so I'm going to get into it. Let's do it. It was a match made in heaven, or at least pretty close, especially tonight, Gail Katz felt as her new beau, Dr. Bob Bierenbaum flew the Cessna plane high over Manhattan. Gail had lived in New York for almost her entire life, and she had never seen it like this. The glowing Statue of Liberty by night, the glittery Hudson River, and of course, the brilliant bright lights of the city that never sleeps. She looked down in wonder as they soared over the Brooklyn Bridge. Everything was made so much more beautiful by the distance and the glow of the white moon. But absolutely nothing was as captivating as Bob himself. His intense dark eyes now lit up just like the skyline. It was true, he really did come alive while flying. Gail tried to commit it all to memory. Later, she would put her overwhelming feelings into a poem for Bob, one in which she called him the master of the heavens. Wow. Bob was not only a pilot, but also a doctor who played guitar and spoke 11 languages fluently. Wow. He is a catch. At 6'2 and leanly muscled, he was not too bad on the eyes either. Gail knew that she was also a catch. She was smart and pretty and funny, but she had her moments of feeling insecure or unworthy. 
The last couple years had been rocky as she found her way in the world and battled her darker impulses. But now, up above the city, falling in love with the perfect guy who was also a Jewish doctor, much to her mother's delight, Gail felt like anything was possible and happiness was within her reach. But true happiness and fulfillment would be elusive for Gail. The dream marriage both she and Bob had wished for would become marred by toxic fights, controlling behavior, domestic abuse, and infidelity, as well as one dire warning from a psychologist. It would take the love and tenacity of family as well as dedicated detectives to finally untangle what had gone so wrong in the demise of this marriage and in the disappearance of one member of it. And then 35 years would go by before the jaw-dropping conclusion of today's episode. Whoa. So there are some trigger warnings for today. Domestic violence, suicide attempts, and this is the one you're not going to like, Andy. Violence against an animal. It's always a red flag. Always if a red someone flag. Someone is mean to There's their gonna... animal or any animal. It's like there's something wrong with you. Oh, very wrong. So yeah, there's a lot of red flags in this episode. So let's start by talking about Bob. Robert Birnbaum was born in Newark, New Jersey on July 22nd, 1955, and he grew up in West Orange. His father was also a doctor, and his mother worked in his father's medical office. Bob was an extremely intellectually gifted and privileged child. It seemed like there was absolutely nothing this guy couldn't do. He got perfect grades, perfect scores on his SATs. He was a brilliant piano and guitar player. He was also super sporty. He ran cross country. He skied at an advanced level. He also took judo and could do chokeholds. He was also a computer whiz. And this is, I mean, gosh, it's like back in the 60s, 70s, very early 80s. So he was a computer whiz before people really had access to computers regularly. He was also said to have a photographic memory, which I'm sure helps yes. in all of these yes, things. Exactly. And that's how you get to be able to speak 11 languages fluently, because that is not an easy feat. But Bob's biggest passion was flying. He eventually decided to follow in his father's footsteps into medicine, graduating from Albany Medical College when he was only 22 years old. Wow. Yep. That same year, he also qualified for his pilot's license. So he decided he wanted to be a medical doctor, but it was very close to wanting to be a professional pilot. And they said that actually one of his first words as a child was plane. Wow. Okay. So he had this passion very early on. And he did actually apply to NASA right after he got out of medical school because I think he wanted to be like a medical astronaut. So cool. But they said no. So this was the only rejection in his professional and academic life. And from our astronaut episode that we did, I recall that they did a lot of psychological testing before they would admit people. And social cue testing and everything, personality testing. And that might have had something to do with it because as advanced as Bob was academically and intellectually, he could be pretty off-putting socially. Really? Okay. It was just the one thing that his parents couldn't teach him. You couldn't learn in a book. He wasn't going to be able to photographically memorize. 
how to be in the world with people. It just didn't come naturally to him. He's very intense, and he was described as blisteringly honest by author Kieran Crowley. So he had this blunt, radical honesty that would cause some discomfort in social settings. And he had also been moved ahead in school because he was so smart. So I think now they are loath to do that as much as they used to back in the day because they're realizing that social intelligence and being able to move in the world and fit in with one's peers is equally important to academic performance. And it seems like he was always a little bit of a fish out of water because he was so much more intellectually advanced than his peers. But then when he moved up, he was not at the social level of the kids he was going to school with then. Yeah. And I also feel like in regards to the NASA saying no, it's if you're setting him up in a space shuttle with a team, you have to know that he's going to be able to socially interact and use his judgment to do things when he's on his own in space. So it's like you have to 100% trust both their education and their social skills, I think. And if he didn't have that, it's like, no bueno. Yeah, because we even talked about that with Lisa Nowak, like that she wasn't a team player, that she could be very single-minded. And that was why they didn't send her up for another mission. And so I can see those same traits here in Bob. By the time Bob met Gail in the early 80s, he already had had a failed engagement behind him and was struggling to find a special someone while working 120 hours a week in his residency program. He told a mutual friend that he was looking for someone who was pretty, bright, and interesting. Okay. Well, Gail Katz was all of those things and more. Gail was born March 8th, 1956, so she's a sensitive Pisces baby like you and our kiddos. Her early life was in Brooklyn, and then her family moved to the suburbs of New York when she was, I think, in fourth grade. She was the oldest of three, and she was exceptionally close to her sister, Elaine, who was just a little bit younger than her. So they were like two peas in a pod. Gail was described as sensitive, loving, and creative. She was beautiful and spirited. She could be high-strung, and she definitely battled anxiety and depression. Gail had like a lot of big feelings and she wasn't afraid to express them. So it was, I definitely, (laughs) I'm not comparing her to like raising a four-year-old, but my daughter has like these huge emotions and they just like come out of her. And I, as I was reading about this and especially her childhood, it sounded a lot like that. She was also smart as a whip and she graduated high school early, just like her future husband. But it seemed like, Well, Bob always stayed on track and he always knew from a very early age what he wanted to accomplish. Gail was brilliant, but she had no direction. Okay. She ended up going to college a year early, of course, and she dropped out of a program. I think it was in social work when she was at SUNY Albany. And then she went to NYU for dance. She was a great dancer and a choreographer, but then she dropped out of that program She was following her impulses. She was trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. She ended up falling really hard for a musician in 1976. We know how that is. (laughs) At least one of us does. (laughs) But, you know, she was having a hard time reconciling the life she felt like she wanted, which was like wild and crazy and creative and artistic and, you know, dabbling with drugs and experiencing all the world has to offer versus 
what her mother wanted for her, specifically her mom, who had worked in a doctor's office her whole life and had really wanted her daughter to grow up and marry like a nice Jewish doctor. And so on both sides, she was just like, who am I? Who is the real me? And which version is going to win out? Am I going to be like the good Jewish daughter who marries the good Jewish doctor? Or am I going to just be wild and crazy and go on tour here? I feel like all of those thoughts are totally normal for someone who is in college. For sure. At 18. Yes, and finding herself. Yeah. So in 1979, Gail was going through a breakup. She was living in New York at this point. She felt very lost. She also had undiagnosed mental health issues that she was dealing with because it's 1979 and there's not an awareness. There's, people aren't taking it as seriously as we do now. There was no screenings for anxiety and depression. So she just felt different and she felt off. And she attempted to commit suicide by taking an overdose of quaaludes and then slitting her wrists. Oh, no. Luckily, a friend discovered her and Gail did survive. She spent two months in a mental health clinic where she began getting the help that she needed. And she continued to work with a psychiatrist for the rest of her life. So she was committed to improving her mental health. And later on, she would actually go back to school to become a psychologist because she wanted to raise more awareness about these issues and also help others who were in her type of situation. But for now, and when she met Bob, Gail was working at an advertising agency when a friend of hers from her band days, by the way, I guess that this friend of hers had been in a band that they were in, but then that friend had met a plastic surgeon. Okay. And gotten married. And then the girl that was in the band, who's now married to the plastic surgeon, met Bob through her husband. And he was like, oh, man, I just want to get married to a nice, cool girl like you. And she's like, well, I do have a single friend named Gail, who is pretty, bright, and interesting. I was going to say, you can't forget pretty. <laughs> I feel like guys don't lead with that anymore, but you know they mean it. Yeah. They're like, I just, I really love a person, somebody with a great personality. Bob seemed to be exactly who Gail had been looking for. Or maybe her mom had been looking for on her behalf. He was a young, wildly intelligent Jewish surgeon, absolutely perfect on paper in every way. But she also liked the fact that Bob was an accomplished musician and he was a pilot on their second or third date. He's already taking her up to go for a flight. I mean, that's pretty wild and crazy. So it's kind of like this marriage of the two paths that Gail had considered. And Bob was wildly attracted to Gail. Gail is adorable. She is just this tiny little firecracker. She couldn't have been more than 5'2", five, 5'3", five, 110 pounds. Very pretty brunette. So he loved her personality. The sex was apparently extraordinary. But academics were important to Bob. So when they started to get serious, he did ask her if she'd consider going back to school, which was kind of on her agenda anyway for life. So he kind of pushed her into going back to school. Yeah, I think at the beginning of Bob and Gail, it was easy to mistake some of his controlling behaviors as helpful. Got it. Okay. Because 
the first couple of things that he really got on Gail about, which were behaviors that she had to change if he was going to consider marrying her, was that he wanted her to have a college degree and he wanted her to stop smoking. Now, those are both great things. Those are things that a doctor would tell you to do, stop smoking for your health. And if it's important to you, getting a college degree is never a bad idea. And, you know, her family was all on board with this. They thought the guy was great, and they thought that he was helping her become the best version of herself. It's just later on when they see other things that they realize this is going to be part of a behavioral pattern. And there were some red flags even when they were just dating. Bob handled things from an intellectual perspective. Everything was logical. It was not about feelings. Well, Gail was all emotional. Every decision she made came from an emotional place. So there's going to be a lot of misunderstandings when you have two people who come from very different viewpoints. Bob worked all of the time, and he was tired and stressed when he was home, which did not amount to a lot of quality time. Even after the couple got engaged, which happened very quickly, Gail did not seem to know if Bob was really the one. There was a friend that spoke to Kieran Crowley that said it was the friend that introduced them, that Bob was great. She thought she was in love with him. She knew she should be in love with him. But there was some lingering doubt about whether this really was the guy. And there's a lot, I mean, Gail, again, like she even going into her late 20s was still figuring stuff out as a lot of us are. But Bob appeared to be head over heels for Gail Except for the fact, like I said, he wanted to change her. He wanted her to have that college degree. He demanded she quit smoking. That was a non-negotiable. And he started changing the way she dressed. He wanted her to look more like a stereotypical doctor's wife rather than some of the clothing she enjoyed before was short or tight. And now he was saying that he wanted her to dress a little bit more conservatively. And how long have they been dating now? Oh, gosh. I think that they only dated for maybe a year before they got married. Wow, okay. Yeah. Bob moves fast, we shall see. Which probably doesn't align with her kind of wishy-washy, still trying to figure things out. Yeah, I think it was, it was good and bad. It's kind of like Gail was the type of person who needed to be swept off her feet, who did believe that love can happen that fast and that a whirlwind romance could last forever because that's the type of person she was. But it's only after she has accepted the proposal that all of a sudden she's going, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait a minute. Maybe this is moving a little fast. Yeah. And he was, he was very controlling in the way that he would act like he was checking on her. So even if he wasn't home, if he's working at the hospital, he'd call her, want to know where she was, what she was doing. Her sister Elaine said that her first red flag, even though she liked the guy, was when they went to a sushi double date together and he was insisting on feeding Gail from his chopsticks. For the whole meal? Yeah. And then he tried to do the same thing with Elaine and she's like, I've got my own chopsticks. I'm good. Thank you. That is very strange. That's very weird. Yeah. Oh my God. Could you imagine? Oh my god. I don't gosh, even want to so feed so awkward. Yeah. I'm like, Echo, you know how to feed yourself. Like you're good. Could you imagine if we were on a double date? And I'm just talking to you normally like this. And then Nathaniel's like feeding me. I'm like, oh, hold on. And then (laughs) then I'm like, anyway, and then we did this. And we went there. And then I'm like, hold on. And Nathaniel's just feeding me. so weird. It's so weird. (laughs) And Gail was like allowing him to? Yeah. She was like letting it happen. 
but there was just like a lot of stuff. Like he'd be like, oh no, Gail, you have to come sit on my lap. Like there was a lot of closeness and stuff that could be sweet, but was just slightly off about their dynamic. So this is all, I would say more like yellow flags. It's like things aren't great, but it's not really like super red flag territory yet. I don't know. The sushi feeding is pretty bright orange. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think we can all agree that this next one is the red flag of red flags. Months before Bob and Gail were supposed to get married, she called a friend, the friend that introduced them, and said that she was very upset about something that Bob had told her. And this is where the trigger warning for violence against an animal comes in. Apparently, Bob had told Gail that after he had broken up with his first fiance, a woman named Marcy, who was also a doctor, he had been returning all of her belongings and things that she had left at his apartment. And one of those things was that when she came over, she brought her cat, apparently, or the cat had been staying at Bob's house for some reason. And so he told Gail that they were in the car driving in Manhattan traffic when all of a sudden something spooked the cat who was loose in the car for whatever reason and not in the cat carrier. And the cat went absolutely haywire and was running around the car, was trying to attack and scratch Bob. This is what he's saying. And he said in a panic because he was worried about swerving into oncoming traffic, he just grabbed at the cat at anything he could manage to get a hold of. And he accidentally grabbed the cat by its neck and gripped it so hard that he strangled the cat to death. Now, why he told Gail this story, I do not know. I don't know if he was trying to threaten her. It seems like an intimidation thing. Yes. And they had adopted a cat together. So they frequently went flying as one of their regular dates. And they had found a little kitty hanging around one of the airport hangars. And they named her Amelia for Amelia Earhart. So cute. Oh, my God. And it was really more of Gail's cat. The cat liked Gail a lot more, which is also telling. Well, yeah, animals know. Yeah. And so she was saying to this friend, I'm a little worried about the cat now and the cat situation. And the friend's like, well, do you think it really was an accident? And Gail said that she wasn't sure. She felt somewhere deep down that this wasn't an entirely true story And that he had maybe killed the cat to get back at his ex, who was the one who broke off the engagement. Yeah, maybe he was also worried that Marcy was going to tell Gail or that Gail would find out. So he wanted to cover his tracks before. But also, I feel like once you would bring another cat into your home, the cat is obviously going to favor the non-murderer and is going to be like, that guy (laughs) killed my cousin. Cats know. Yes. Cats know more than dogs. Dogs would be best friends with a serial killer. Dogs would be like, who we killing today, pop? Cats are like, I don't know about you. I don't know about all this. I'm out. Well, Gail's gut instincts about her worry for Amelia seemed correct because months later, when now it was only three weeks before their August 1982 wedding, Gail called her sister Elaine in hysterical tears. Oh, no. Yeah. She said that she and Bob had gotten into a terrible fight And they had not resolved it. So they had gone to bed furious with one another. And she said that she woke up in the middle of the night to find that Bob was not in bed with her. 
and she immediately knew something was very wrong. And then she heard a noise coming from down the hall. So she immediately got out of bed and she went to where Bob was standing in the bathroom. And he appeared to be strangling Amelia while holding the cat's head in the toilet bowl. Um, I would say that's more than a fight. That's a pack your shit and get the fuck out. Exactly. Gail had managed to stop him and he had apparently apologized. How's the cat? The cat was okay. But she later told a psychologist that Bob had admitted to trying to kill the cat, saying that the cat was ungrateful and that Gail loved the cat more than Gail loved him. Uh, I don't think we need to tell y'all that pet murder is not an attribute you want in a life partner. Nor how you cope with feelings? No. So the next day, Elaine went with Gail to bring Amelia to an animal shelter because at this point, Gail said, I don't believe that she's safe with Bob in the home. And so Elaine was pretty floored by all of this because even though she saw the weird sushi thing, every other indication was that Bob was a gentle doctor. She had never seen anything like this. Yeah, we didn't have podcasts telling us about how doctors actually try to kill patients sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. So she was having a very hard time reconciling this whole thing because this is such a shocking allegation, of course. But she knew that her sister seemed genuinely terrified, so it must be real. And she said, why don't we keep the cat and get rid of Bob? Yeah. She said, there's something really scary here, and it's really wrong. What about Bob? Bob is a cat murderer, so he's got to go. Bob is the problem. Yeah, we've got one confirmed cat kill and now an attempted murder, so I think we're just going to get rid of Bob. And that's essentially what Elaine said. But for whatever reason, Gail said that she could not break off the wedding at that point. She said that she did love him and she believed wholeheartedly that she could change him. And besides, she said the wedding invitations were already out. The deposits already paid. This big old wedding's going down in three weeks. I think that this happens all of the time where these types of... Incidents occur in domestic violence situations, and there's always a reason not to leave. There's always, well, there's the kids, or there's something happening, or we just got engaged, or we just bought a house together. They might feel very valid and real. It's only the people on the outside, especially with hindsight, that can say to you that it would have been so much better to go through canceling all of those invitations and losing that money and making your parents temporarily disappointed with you. Yep, 100%. Yeah, and and this is also indicative of the domestic violence and coercive control that's happening because Gail told Elaine that she was going to be safe as long as she did everything that Bob wanted and she made Bob happy. Uh, uh, Then he wouldn't act out. Yeah, but that's how you want to live your life, like... No, and it doesn't sound like Gail's that type of person that would be able to live her life like this. (sighs) Yeah, Gail was unable for some reason to see that she was the metaphorical cat. She's rehoming her cat to make her cat safe, but she needs to rehome herself. So the wedding went on as planned on August 29th, 1982, and Bob and Gail looked every bit the happy, young, attractive couple. We will definitely put up their wedding photo, I mean, they look 
you would never assume in a million years that he had killed or tried to kill her cat three weeks earlier. Three weeks earlier. Wow. Yeah, you have no idea. I mean, they're both, they both are smiling. They look very happy. But matrimony did nothing to solve their problems, of course. And they fought constantly on their honeymoon in Greece. She would even say later to a psychologist that she was afraid to stand next to him while they were on like a Greek cliffside because she was afraid he would push her off. Yeah. Wouldn't you be? That tingly sense in the back of like all of our spines that tells us something is wrong and we're in danger back from a bazillion years ago that has been handed down through evolution to us that says get the fuck out. That was going off in Gale for sure. Somewhere deep down, she was like, this guy is going to be dangerous. Yeah, while she's vacationing in Greece on what's supposed to be like the most joyous trip of her life. Exactly. When they returned, Gail started school to get her degree in psychology, and Bob went back to the grueling surgical residence grind. Over the next few months, the fighting only intensified. Bob's behavior was growing more extreme. When they would get into these fights, and Gail would not back down from a fight. She was not pussyfooting around. This was not somebody who was walking on eggshells. She would give as good as she got. So they would have these screaming matches at each other. And during these screaming matches, Bob would, he started by threatening violence against himself to himself. So if they were driving, gosh, what's it called? Like the FDR in New York? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a very busy, very fast little, like, highway. He twice, while they were fighting in the car, threatened to throw himself out of it while they were driving on that. And another time they got into a fight and he grabbed a very sharp kitchen knife and put it to his stomach and said that if she didn't stop yelling at him, he was going to cut himself open. So scary. Another time he jumped over their balcony railing and they live in a high-rise building in Manhattan, and said he was going to just let go. So he was doing all of this stuff to scare her. Obviously, these are huge red flags, but it it also is a very short skip and a jump to go from that to threatening violence to Gail, obviously. In November of 1983, a couple months after their first wedding anniversary, Bob was working late at the hospital, and Gail was studying for her GRE. The GRE is a test, I think it's mostly here in the States, And many graduate schools require it to be able to apply and then get into graduate school. And Gail was really nervous about this test. She was really excited to apply to get a master's in psychology, and she wanted to continue her education. But she was nervous that the test was the next day. So she's basically cramming. And while she was cramming and he's working really late, I think it was around like 10, 11 p.m., She got her secret stash of cigarettes out, and she started smoking on their terrace. Now, the cigarette smoking was this huge thing in their relationship. And later on, Gail would talk to a psychologist who said that it wasn't just about the cigarettes, that the cigarettes had come to represent infidelity. It had come to represent so much more in their relationship than just her having a cigarette. Her being unfaithful to him to the cigarette? Basically that he asked her before they got married to just do one thing for him and not smoke. And she had made that promise and that vow. And she at every turn would go 
against that promise. And then, and this is, and Andy, I'm saying that's not for better or for wrong. It's just that to his mind, it was clear that this was more important than that. And Gail did know this. She was aware of it because she talked to a psychologist about it. She was completely aware that this is how he felt, but she couldn't stop. So that was kind of emblematic of their relationship and this failure to come together and compromise and make it work. He was so rigid about his demands of her. Demands, yeah. And she would say, well, fuck it. Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? Well, that night he came home and she wasn't actively smoking when he came home, but he came out and her cigarettes were right there with her books that she'd been studying with. And they got into a terrible fight. And Gail, when cornered, would strike back out at him. So she started saying that he didn't measure up as a man. She was trying to hurt him with her words. And again, she was bringing up that the cigarette issue had obviously more meaning to him than it really was. And Bob snapped. He just completely snapped. And she said later that he said coldly, I'm going to kill you with no emotion, just straightforward. And then before she could even react, he was on top of her and he was strangling her. Now, he's 6'2", she's 5'2", maybe 5'3". She's tiny. He's a foot taller than her. He's got strong surgical hands. And he knows exactly what to do, not just through his medical career, but also through judo, how to cut off somebody's air pipe. So she passed out. I mean, she was out cold. She believes she came to maybe some minutes later. And when she woke up, Bob was apologizing profusely, but Gail could not even deal with it emotionally at this point. She knew that she should go to the police, but she was thinking, I've got to get up in the morning early and take my test. Oh, no. So she just went to bed and did not deal with it. And then she went up. She went to take her GRE the next morning and she had to wear a turtleneck because she had, at that point, large bruises all over her throat. And then after she left the GRE, she did talk to some friends who convinced her to go to the police. And that is when she did go to the police and she did make a complaint. So I also watched an episode of 2020 that came out in uh, 2021. It's called Do No Harm, season 44, episode 3. And there's a guy on it who said that it is shocking that she went there. She's like, my husband tried to kill me. Here's the bruises on my neck. And they did nothing. But he said that it was 1983. He's like, if this had gone down today and at the time 21 and now it's 23, then that guy would have absolutely been in handcuffs. But instead, they just filed the report, didn't ask him any questions and let Gail go home to him. Andy, nothing in the world matters as much to us as our kids' health. So I'm excited to share our sponsor today, Haya Health. Absolutely. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise. Filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat. And that's why Haya was created. It's a pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin. Did you know that most children's vitamins are filled with five grams of sugar? Uh, yes, it's like ketchup. Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. 
Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with the yummy taste they love. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, it has a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies and is supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else you can imagine. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door so parents have one less thing to worry about. Always so ideal. Absolutely. And I've talked about this before, but my dad's a dentist and he sees all the time such wonderful, well-meaning parents coming in with little kids who have cavities because of gummy vitamins. Which also, I got to say, guys, I love giving my kids ice cream, maybe the occasional treat, some candy every once in a while. I want to make sure I know when they're getting that sugar. Yes. And yes. not be also giving that sugar to them with their vitamins. Absolutely. Also, I don't know if you saw, but it comes with these cute little stickers that you can customize the bottle with their name and make it kind of unique for them. And they were so cute and fun to do with Echo. Yeah, it really makes it their own. We have worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You can receive 50% off your first order. And to claim this deal, you just go to HayaHealth.com slash lovemurder. This deal is not available on the regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash lovemurder and get your kids the full-body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. So Gail did tell her sister what happened, but she begged her sister not to tell their parents. And she was spinning this as a positive thing. She was saying, look, it's clear that he needs psychiatric care. And he has been telling me he wouldn't see a psychologist. So now that I have this police report, and now that there's documented evidence of his assault on me, now I can force him to get some help. But yeah, this is not a positive. And he's not your responsibility. She thought he was. I mean, she said, you stand by your man. If you're married, you guys fix things together. I think she was maybe equating it to some of her own mental health issues, which are very different problems. That she thought that somehow this aggression, this control could be worked on in therapy. I mean, she wants to help people. That's why she's going to school to be a psychiatrist. You know what I mean? So it's like she's just trying to ultimately help him too and doesn't realize that he's going to kill her. And this is where the psychologist comes in. So Bob agreed to seek help and they ended up being referred to, I think, three different psychologists, all who believed that Gail was in danger. Really? Okay. And Bob wanted to keep changing when that would happen or how would that? Basically, the first two psychologists basically just did an initial appointment with Bob and then referred him out to somebody else. So it's like, initial appointment, I don't think I'm the person that can help you. I'm going to refer you to my colleague. Okay, that's the second person. Then they did the same thing. So the third psychologist they got to was this guy, Dr. Michael Stone. Dr. Michael Stone was like, I'm fully prepared to take you both on. So he had the couple reports from the very early appointments with the initial two psychologists. And he said that he would see Bob and Gail separately 
for several 90-minute consultative sessions before recommending a course of treatment. So he's like, I'm going to actually spend a lot of time with you, get the lay of the land of your marriage, and then we will figure out how we move forward. And I am not putting this lightly. Dr. Stone was terrified of Bob, genuinely scared for his own life and his family's life. He said that right away, right away, right from the first appointment, Bob radiated evil. In a flat, straightforward tone, Bob described strangling Gail's cat. He said he had strangled it because the cat wasn't listening to him. Oh, my God. And he also admitted with not a bat of an eye that he had also strangled Gail. But there was so much more. Bob admitted to this psychologist that he had also strangled his previous fiance, Marcy, while they were in a fight which is why she had broken off the engagement. And that Gail had been exactly right. He didn't accidentally strangle Marcy's cat in his car. He had used the spare key he still had to Marcy's apartment, let himself in, and strangled the cat to death for revenge. He said this to the psychologist. Mm-hmm. And he said that he said it to him in a completely flat way devoid of any feeling like he was talking about the weather. And what can Dr. Stone do about this? Well, so there was no doubt at this point to Dr. Stone that Bob was a psychopath and not a garden variety CEO, head of industry psychopath, but a violent psychopath. And he felt very strongly that Gail's life was in danger. So there is something, obviously he can't break patient confidentiality, but there was something called a Tarasoff warning. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Please don't at me if I'm not. But what happened, this, there was a precedent set, I think, in California at some point because a student came forward to say that they had broken up with their girlfriend and they wanted to kill her. And the therapist worked with that student. And eventually, I think that either the girlfriend or the student had gone away for a while, been out of the country. The student stopped seeing the doctor, but when everyone returned to campus, eventually the kid ended up killing his girlfriend in exactly the way he had described to the therapist. So the girl's parents sued the school and the therapist for not warning her that this guy had very blatantly said he was going to kill her in exactly the way that he ultimately killed her months earlier. You're in immediate danger. You're in immediate danger. And so they had no idea and then it happened. So that was a land-breaking case that said the only time you can break confidentiality is to inform somebody that they are in immediate danger. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that. Or obviously if you're in danger to yourself, etc. So he's like, well, this certainly qualifies for a Tarasoff warning. So he was going to tell Gail. He also was scared of treating Bob, who's a psychopath, a violent psychopath, in case he did something that made Bob feel like wronged or like Dr. Stone was rejecting him in some way. He was genuinely concerned. And so he decided that he was going to speak with Gail and he was going to warn her and he was going to talk about her part in this relationship and see what she had to say about everything that was going on. But then the plan was to involve both Gail's and Bob's parents in the conversation 
and make it clear to everyone involved that Gail was in trouble and to make it clear to Bob's parents that their son was a violent psychopath and that he said going forward to continue treating Bob, he was going to need Bob to have a life insurance policy on him. So if he died because of treating Bob, that his kids would get hundreds of thousands of dollars because he was that worried about treating Bob. Wow. And was Bob down for treatment? Like when he... No. We're going to move into what he said to Gail before he broke all of this down for them and was like, you're a violent psychopath. I'm not going to treat you unless you do X, Y, and Z. Before that, he spoke to Gail because it was now his time, his 90 minutes with Gail. So Gail's session was the following day. And she was also very candid about her own history with mental issues, her suicide attempt, of course, her husband's frightening and homicidal behavior. Well, Dr. Stone made an interesting point to Gail. Bob had chosen the night that Gail was least likely to turn him in as the point to strangle her. It was already past 11 p.m. and her test was in the morning. He knew how important that test was to her. He was like, yes, you got into a fight, but you've gotten into a million fights. It was that night because he was calculating the risk of you actually going to the police and he did not think that you would. And then you didn't. Dr. Stone also made a note that Gail had seven out of nine symptoms of borderline personality disorder. The traits that he felt like fit Gail were the following. Frenzied attempts to avoid imagined abandonment, a history of passionate but unstable relationships, confusion of identity, impulsivity in sex, drugs, and eating, suicidal behavior and self-mutilation, feelings of constant emptiness, and inappropriate fits of temper and sadness. And despite Dr. Stone's strong warnings about Bob's psychopathic behavior, Gail did not seem to be inclined to leave him while they were having this session. After a couple more sessions, Dr. Stone diagnosed Gail as having borderline personality disorder, as he suspected. And he believed that Gail was intentionally starting conflict with Bob to instigate a reaction. So this is just what he's saying. For example, leaving the cigarettes out. She knew that he was going to be coming home at some point. So she's like leaving them out. She's like in some ways, she's not doing this consciously. It's just, it's happening. And then later it will come out that Gail had at least two extramarital affairs while she was with Bob, which we will briefly touch on later. And at this point that they're having this conversation, I think she had had one fling already. So that is obviously risky behavior if your husband is a violent psychopath. So I want to preface this next part by saying that Gail did not deserve to be abused. It has to go without saying because we're getting into the psychology of like what she might be doing unconsciously that could provoke X, Y, and Z behavior. It is not Gail's responsibility if her husband chokes her. There's nothing in the world you can do, whether it's infidelity or smoking a cigarette, that means that you deserve to have somebody try to extinguish your life. So I just want to make that very clear because we're going to get into what Dr. Stone thought about how these two personalities were playing into each other and why this situation was occurring. But I want to be clear that it is still not Gail's fault. No, we're not blaming any of these. Exactly. So Dr. Stone believed that the way their personalities and their personality disorders interacted with each other was a powder keg. 
He said that the pairing of a violent psychopath and a self-destructive borderline personality was perfect. It was a perfect match set. Basically, Gail wanted destruction, and Bob was only too eager to destroy her. Dr. Stone straight up said a very blunt thing to Gail. He said, you decided to say, well, fuck suicide. I'll just marry somebody who kills me instead to, like, try to snap her out of it. And she did not think that she was in danger, even though she told him about being on their honeymoon and how she thought he was going to push her off a cliff. And she's like, but he didn't. And then he could have killed me that night when he strangled me. But he left me alive. So I don't think he's really going to kill me. Yeah. Is what she said to him. And he's like, hey, Gail, you're in school to be a psychologist. You know better than most lay people that these behaviors only escalate. Please, can you just see what I'm seeing? And she said, no. Eventually it got so bad that he wrote the following letter and asked her to sign it. It read, I have been advised by Dr. Stone that for reasons for my own safety, I should at this time live apart from my husband, Dr. Robert Bierenbaum, and until such time as it would appear that the risk of injury to my person has been significantly reduced. I further understand that owing to the unpredictable nature of my husband's physical assaults and to the chronic nature of the characterological abnormalities that underlie these assaults, no firm date can as yet be fixed as to when it may be safe to resume living together. If I do not heed this advice, I must accept the consequences, including the possibility of personal injury or even death at the hands of my husband and absolve Dr. Stone of responsibility for any such eventuality. Dr. Stone, meantime, promises to warn me and my parents of when he deems any such risk to be particularly intense and imminent to the best of his ability, should he undertake to treat my husband, and will also give such a warning if indicated during this consultation period. Whoa. That's really intense. And she just signed that? Nope, she didn't sign it. She said, no, I'm not signing this. And we're going to go to a different shrink. No. Yep. She refused to sign the letter, but she didn't get rid of it. In fact, she copied it and she made sure that she had the letter in a bank safety deposit box. So deep down, there's that gut again saying, you didn't sign it. You didn't push him to stay with Dr. Stone, but there's something you're thinking. She also told her sister later that... If this progressed to divorce, which seemed likely, she felt like that could be some leverage, this letter. So they go to a new therapist, obviously, because Bob was offended that this guy said he was so violent that he needed to have an insurance policy to treat him. Called it like it was, pretty much. Yes. And poor Dr. Michael Stone is like, he had been through this with two previous patients. He had had two patients that were in domestic violence situations with their spouses and they had both died by their spouse's hands. So this is, this is the third time he's dealing with this and he's saying, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going balls to the wall with the warnings and I'm doing everything I can to protect my patient, but also to protect myself from liability. And so he was really sad that they did not stay in treatment and he was very concerned that the end result was going to be Gail's death. So the new therapist did not believe that Bob was a psychopath or that Gail had a borderline personality disorder. Instead, the new 
psychologist, believe that they were just a highly dysfunctional couple due to Bob's adjustment disorder and Gail's partner relational problem, which was characterized by poor communication, criticism, and unrealistic expectations. So the Beer and Bobs saw this person for four months. They went regularly. So they're in treatment. The relationship improved enough that Gail felt comfortable enough adopting two more cats. But things had not improved. Neighbors reported screaming fights coming from the apartment regularly. In April and August of 1984, Gail consulted with a divorce attorney. Each time she told Bob, she was very open about it. This was not her sneaking around going to a divorce attorney. Every time she went, she said, you can bill my husband. He knows we've talked about this. And each time Bob begged her to stay. He said he would change his behavior. He did not want to give up the relationship. He loved her. And Gail, I think for a little bit, really did want him to change and wanted to make the relationship work. But consciously or unconsciously, she was not always acting like she was all in on the relationship. She began to avoid physical touch with Bob. She told people that she was going to bed fully clothed so that he wouldn't be able to touch her. In February of 1985, she met a new affair partner and this guy she began to develop feelings for. So she is not checked into this relationship. She is definitely one foot out the door. And in the book, it said that in her early relationships, she always had the next guy lined up before she left her current guy. So it seems like this is a pattern. So now she's got this new boyfriend and they haven't had sex for, according to Bob, when he saw one of his friends, a year and Bob told his best friend, the guy who had been the best man at his wedding to Gail, the following when he saw him in February of 1985. He said, quote, I'm so angry with Gail. I don't know what I'm doing. I hate her so much I could kill her. And the best friend at that point was like, Bob, you have to get back to seeing that psychologist because those are not normal feelings. By summer of 1985, Gail was finally making plans to divorce Bob. She had been trying to wait for the perfect time. Maybe she'd be a little further along in grad school. She could be a little bit more independent. She had been trying to like weave this very tight rope of getting out okay and safe with getting out with what she needed financially to be okay independently. But she was openly talking about it with her friends, her hairdresser, her family. They all knew that this was in the works. And by then, she was thinking that she might have a real future with this guy, Ken, that she was seeing at the time. So Bob was working on July 4th, and Gail ended up going to see the fireworks on a date with new guy, Ken. And maybe that sparked some realization that this was just untenable. She could not continue sneaking around, that her life had to start, finally. And she told Bob when she saw him the next day, they were in the Hamptons. And she was like, I want to spend the weekend for you. And then when we go back to the city, I want to have like a serious dinner and actually spend some time and talk to you about the state of our relationship. Now, her hairdresser and her gynecologist saw her on Saturday, or I think it was Friday or Saturday, something, probably Friday if she's seeing her gynecologist. And they said that she seemed like she was in good spirits. Like she had made a decision. She was getting an IUD. 
she was moving forward in her life. She seemed like she was doing okay. So on the night of Saturday, July 6, 1985, Gail and Bob prepared a dinner of steak, potatoes, salad, and grilled veggies together. And they sat down. I guess Gail made herself a rum and tonic, and she said, I want to legally separate. We can't do this anymore. We've talked about it before, but now it's, it's really time. And they began to very badly argue about this. He wanted to stay together, obviously. She was saying that she wanted him to pay for all of her graduate school, even though they were getting a divorce. He didn't understand why they had to get divorced. She may have, I didn't get like real confirmation on this. It was suggested that she might have told him she was seeing somebody else. Like, it's done. I'm trying to tell you it's done. I'm actually even dating somebody else. There's somebody I want to see. Wouldn't you be terrified? Like, I'm terrified for her 35 years later. Yeah. Gail had no fear. Whether that was a good or bad thing, we don't know. (laughs) Sometimes fear, a little healthy fear might be a good thing. So, yeah, so she's breaking it down with him. The neighbor said that they heard fighting into the wee hours of the morning, and then it started back up the next day as well. So their next-door neighbors were away. They went away on vacation, but the woman who lived downstairs recalled hearing lots of yelling between 10 and 10.30 in the morning on that Sunday morning. She said that she heard Gail's heels clicking angrily on the floor. There was a lot of yelling and then a very loud bang. But This was not uncommon. They fought a lot. There was a lot of door slamming that sounded like that type of banging, obviously. So this was nothing that she would even report because they fought so constantly. That evening, Bob attended his nephew's birthday party at his sister's house in New Jersey alone. And Gail had been supposed to accompany him. He told his sister that Gail had left after they had had a fight. So after they fought in the morning that the neighbors heard, he said that she said she was going to go take a walk in Central Park to cool off, but she never came home. On Monday morning, Bob called Gail's psychiatrist, her friends, and family to tell them all Gail was gone and that he was worried that she may do or may have already done something to harm herself. So that night at 9 p.m., with still no sign of Gail, he went to the police to report that Gal was missing. Gail's family and her best friend knew almost immediately that Gail was not missing. On 2020, Elaine said, if she's not with me and she's not with my parents, she's dead. And there's only one person who could have done it. And one person who knows. Exactly. Bob told the police and Gail's family, again, that they got into a fight. She said she was going to go into Central Park. He said that he was home the entire time until he left for Jersey to go to that party. And he did not get there until, I think, 7 p.m. So we're talking about eight hours, seven hours, if you discount when he had to leave the house to get to Jersey by seven. So seven hours then? That's a long time. You can do a lot of shit in seven hours. It's a full work day. Yep. Bob has no alibi. So the police searched Central Park, obviously found nothing. And the Katz family began distributing missing posters. Two of the men that Gail had dated during her marriage were properly vetted and both were thoroughly alibied. So the boyfriends had nothing to do with this. 
And it did seem that whether or not Gail actually told him that night or threw it in his face, we do not know. But through comments he made to other people, it seemed like he knew. He knew that there was at least one extramarital affair. He said he had gone through her address book and he knew and that there had been hang up calls and that at some point one of her lovers had come to the apartment while he was working and asked to be let up to his apartment, not Gail, to make it look like he was going to visit the male part of the partnership. So there was enough clues, and we know that Dr. Bob's a smart guy, of course. So it stands to reason that he was aware, at least a little bit, of Gail's infidelity. So after this, this is all going down, and they're in this terrible situation, the Katz family, because they 100% believe that Bob absolutely did something to their sister because Elaine, after she went missing, told her parents everything about the cat, about the other cat, about the choking incident, the police report, the letter, everything, because that was all stuff Gail didn't want her parents to know. And Elaine was like, well, you're gone now, so too bad I'm telling my parents everything. So they are all stuck with him while he's only barely going through the motions of putting up posters because he acted pretty disinterested. And even the police noticed. So the missing persons detective was noticing that he was not acting like a typical spouse. He did not seem concerned about his wife. And what's more, what was really, really, really frustrating to the Katzes was that he was telling the missing persons detectives that, you know, she tried to commit suicide before. She's probably killed herself. Or I don't know, you know, I heard maybe she was doing drugs with a lover. She was doing a lot of cocaine. So maybe she went into the park to buy some drugs and a drug dealer got her. Wow. But, you know, she's really not mentally very well. She's been seeing a psychiatrist because she's not mentally well. So I fear the worst might have come to her, especially if she's on drugs. So Elaine was, like, screaming on the inside. She said that the Birnbaum family, his parents too, We're all saying those things, like within earshot of the Katz family. And they're like, are you kidding me? You, you, the guy we're pretty darn sure killed our daughter, are now defaming her to everyone, to newspapers? Tracks. It was just too much to bear. But the police weren't buying it. Bob, like I said, hadn't been enthusiastic or genuine. He did not seem particularly interested in updates about the search for his wife. Their suspicion increased when they discovered that Bob had nearly killed Gail before, and it was documented, had actually killed an ex's cat, and had been labeled a violent and potentially homicidal psychopath already by Dr. Stone. After an interview with the police turned into an interrogation, Bob lawyered up. So he immediately got himself a very fancy schmancy defense attorney. And when he wasn't having conversations with his new defense attorney, Bob was out in the Hamptons partying it up. Mere weeks after Gail has gone missing, only about two weeks after Gail disappeared, Bob was already dating again. Wow. He told a nurse that he worked with and slept with that a private investigator his family had hired had tracked Gail down on the West Coast where she was alive and well and waitressing and they were just breaking up. The audacity. That's what he told her to get in her pants. Yeah. Of course, that was not true. The Katz family had also hired their own private investigator. And they said that there was absolutely no trace of Gail being alive anywhere. They also worked tirelessly with the detectives to try to unearth any clue that could connect Bob to Gail's murder or follow any lead about Gail's whereabouts. Elaine 
I mean, this this shattered all of their lives. Yes, of course. All of their lives. Like Elaine was, she had graduated law school. She was supposed to be taking the bar exam. She ended up putting it off a year. Her boyfriend at the time took a year off Harvard Business School to help the family with the investigation and the search. They were all in, and they were all in on suspecting Bob, too. But only two months, two months after Gail was gone, he had already moved a new girlfriend into the apartment he had shared with Gail. Well, that's unfortunate that she's going to have to move out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she actually comes into play later in a very interesting uh, turn of events. Her name is Dr. Roberta, which is really funny if they had ended up together, Dr. Bob and Dr. Roberta. And... It's like, I'm not going to cast stones here because obviously Gail was doing her own things behind the scenes, but it looked like he may have set up this situation with the nurse who he slept with, but was not his girlfriend. And then the doctor, Roberta, who I think was an anesthesiologist. And she said that like he had been playing footsie with her in the OR during surgeries. Can you imagine that a person has their hands in your guts doing a life saving surgery? And they're rubbing their legs under the table with the anesthesiologist. Horrifying. And this happened definitely after Gail was missing? I think it was, it was happening during. Wow. This seems like it might have happened before. A little bit of crossover. A little crossover. Yeah. <sighs> but you got to hand it to Elaine and the Katzes because they refused to give up. I mean, also Elaine was making... His life fucking miserable. She and her mom, Sylvia, were like, call and leave messages on his answering machine, hoping his girlfriend, if you're there and you hear this, get out because he killed our daughter. He's probably going to kill you. They were distributing letters and sending them to every person who lived in any building he lived in, all of his coworkers, all of his bosses. I mean, I was like, I could see Andy doing this. Yep. I was like, guys, don't murder me because Andy will get your ass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You and Nathaniel combined? Scary. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) The hammers of justice. (laughs) But, yeah, so she was, like, going after him. And so when they hit a dead end with the missing persons detectives, they used their connections to get to a top, top detective with the Manhattan DA's office and ask him to look at the case. So his name was Chief Investigator Lieutenant Andy Rosenswig, and he was all over it. So the first thing he had to do was establish a timeline, obviously. Gail had been alive between at least 10 and 10.30 because the downstairs neighbor heard her. But the doorman had not seen Gail nor Bob leave the apartment, had seen absolutely zero comings and goings of the beer and bombs that day until later when Bob came home from his nephews. Huh. Unfortunately, and they didn't have videos in the lobby. So they have nothing to go on from basically like 10, 30, 11 ish to when Bob comes home from New Jersey. Yeah, like which was probably 10 ish if the party was at seven. Yeah, I think he left around nine. So probably he got home around 10 ish potentially. Yeah, so that's 12 hours. So that's about it. That's all they know. So they're like somewhere in that window, it would stand to reason that he killed Gail and he disposed of her remains. So The police searched Bob's apartment, and they came up completely empty-handed. There was no blood evidence. They did luminol. They did everything. They did not find any forensic evidence. However, there was a rug that had gone missing. Mm, The old rug. The old rug. And by the time they were looking into this, the rug was long gone. Yep. 
And he said that he had gotten rid of the rug because one of the cats had thrown up on it. So he still has the cats? He has two cats. He has the cats. Okay. These cats are alive and well. Because also Dr. Stone thought that the whole choking of Amelia the cat Mm -hmm. was him using the cat in place of Gail. He wanted to choke Gail. But at that point in their relationship, he obviously was trying to contain himself. Yes. So instead, he was using it as like almost like a proxy or a voodoo doll or something. So now Gail's gone. He has no problems. And the cats are safe, apparently. So there's a missing rug, but there's no evidence. I mean, you can't hold that in a court of law and say, well, the missing rug, it's not a smoking gun. It's not a murder weapon. So there's none of that. So they're like, okay. Well, we have to find out what he was doing in that time frame because they didn't actually believe that he was home the entire time. He must have left. He must have gone somewhere to get rid of the body. So then investigator Andy found out that Bob was an avid pilot. So he and his other detectives that are on his team checked all of the small airports in the tri-state area to see if he had gone to any of them. After two weeks of searching, he hit gold. Bob had gone to Sky King Flight Service on Sunday, July 7th, and rented a Cessna model airplane for two hours. Flight logs showed that he had been in the air from 4.30 p.m. to 6.25, and then, based on the timeline, he must have gone straight to his sister's house. Okay. So they know that Bob has lied, and now they're building a theory. They believed that he had somehow killed her in the apartment when the fight turned to violence, Then he must have put her in a flight bag or some sort of duffel or even, he's a doctor, cut her up and put her in different parcels, taken her, got on the airplane, and then pushed her body or body parts out into the ocean. Um, okay, that's so psychotic. And I'm still trying to imagine how that even happens. It's pretty wild. So we'll get more into that later. So that's the working theory at this point. Are you allowed to bring anything on small private planes? Like, what's the deal? You were apparently in 1985. I mean, if you're renting a plane and you're going somewhere, a lot of times you're going there to drop off things on an island or something. But like the blood. I mean, he's a doctor. He would know surgically how to contain it if there was blood. Or maybe he killed her bloodlessly. I mean, it seems like he's very fond of strangling. Okay. Andy, okay. So anyway, that's just their theory. And now they need to prove it. Did people agree with Andy? Or were they like... It was the only thing that they could think of that made sense. That was the only place that they found that he had gone. So they know that there's nothing in the apartment. They searched the plane that he had taken out. But had been months and months. And the plane, they had very particular logs so they could see that the plane had been meticulously cleaned like four times since he had rented it by then so there's no evidence in the plane so they canvass everybody in the building and no one could definitively say that they saw him leaving with a big duffel bag or a flight bag or anything okay so they don't have any eyewitnesses there's nothing in the plane there's nothing in the apartment they're like okay well he had to drive to get to this place His car was in the shop at the time that Gail went missing. They searched that car anyway, and there was nothing in it. And so they found out what car he was driving when Gail went missing, and that was his father's Cadillac. But very conveniently, his father's Cadillac had been stolen. 
Oh. And this is months later, so it had been stolen sometime after Gail went missing. I'm not sure exactly how soon after. And by the time the police were able to find it, it had been out on the streets in New York for weeks, and it had been completely stripped down to the studs. Oh, my God. Regardless, they did bring in what was left of the Cadillac and had forensic techs go over it, but it was disgusting. There was nothing they could pick up that was obviously belonging to Gail. Okay. So no car. So at that point, it had been nine months of this investigation, and investigator Andy knew he absolutely knew Bob was guilty and he knew Bob was really smart and he knew Bob thought that he had committed the perfect murder, but there was nothing that was going to hold up in court. So he had to do the devastating thing and tell the Katz family that he might get away with it because we can't bring charges based on the evidence we have. Oh my God. They just closed the investigation. <sighs> well, hope bloomed when a torso washed up on Staten Island on May 21st, 1989. I mean, what? Yeah, it's a torso. So this is horrific to think that this is possibly good news, but that's just a window into the world of what homicide survivors have to deal with is that they find out about a torso washing up on an island and they're hoping that it belongs to their loved one. Four years later. Yes, four years later. Now, they did not know initially if this could even be Gail's because it was in better condition than they thought that a torso would be after four years in the water. And at this point in 1989, the DNA was just not up to snuff to definitively prove it at that point. Yeah, of course. So instead, to confirm that this was Gail's, they did use x-rays. So she had had x-rays on file with her doctor and they compared the two x-rays and the technician did believe that this was Gail's torso. Wow. And they said that it was obvious that the corpse had been dismembered or disarticulated very carefully. But other than that, there were no immediate clues. And obviously, this body part had been in the water for a very long time. So unfortunately, this was not going to put forth, uh, you know, a new information that would get Bob arrested. But there were two positive things that came from this. The first thing is that now that they know Gail is dead, she can have a death certificate. And as the cause of death, it does say homicide. So if any other new information comes out later and they can prosecute Bob, his defense attorney can't say, well, you don't have a body, so we don't even know that she's dead. So that's one movement in the right direction. But the other thing was that now the Katzes were able to lay her to rest. They were able to have a funeral. They were able to have a place to visit her. And it definitely did not feel like closure without justice, but it was a measure of comfort. So Bob moved to Las Vegas during this period. Elaine is on the 2020 and she's like, yeah, I chased him out. I ran him out of town. <laughs> she's amazing. She's like amazing. So he had decided that he was going to focus on plastic surgery. So he's going to be a plastic surgeon. That's his calling. And what better place to be than Showgirl Central, where he can do a lot of breast augmentation, A lot of titties. A lot of titties. So while loved ones of Gail were still reeling, Dr. Bob was reinventing himself. He became quite the playboy. He started wearing designer suits. He was apparently fond of his Armani suits. 
And he liked to take all of his first dates flying. And do you want to know what his pickup line was? Um, Not really, but I think you're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you. He'd say, hey, do you want to get high? Because then he would take them on an airplane. Oh, my God. He's so lame. (laughs) Could you also imagine if somebody was like, because he was like very clean, like didn't do drugs, obviously, and like barely drank and was against smoking. If somebody was like, yeah, what do you got? Cocaine? Meth? Acid? What do you mean? Just a little marijuana? I mean, it's the 90s, too, you know? (laughs) Wow. He'd be like, wow, you're crossed off my wife list. Yeah, but he seemed to be doing well. He was well-liked by the staff he worked with. People even thought that he was a great guy because he would go down to Mexico and do these pro bono missions where he would operate on children with cleft palates. After you kill someone and a cat, there's no amount of good deeds you can do to get you out of limbo. I don't think you're going to be atoning for those sins. No. Well, no matter what version of Bob he was. Oh, also he had, he had vanity license plates and it was on his car it was nip and tuck. And then he had a truck and it said nip and truck. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, so whatever flashy Vegas version of Bob this was, he still couldn't close the deal with women. He couldn't get anyone to marry him. Well, in Vegas, he got engaged to three different women with, he, get he, this. He couldn't get any of them to a drive through <laughs> church out no. there. No. But Andy, he proposed with the same diamond every time. Of course he did. But he, you know, he's classy. He got it reset. <laughs> Those big brains will only get you so far, you know? He's just being logical. It's like, well, I'm not going to get rid of a great diamond. We'll just reset it. Which makes me wonder, though, because I did not find out if they recovered. I'm guessing they didn't. So Gail didn't want an engagement ring. She wanted earrings. So he had taken the, the diamond he had given Marcy, and he had set it in an earring, and then she had taken a diamond she had received from a former lover, and that was the other earring, and those were her engagement earrings. So funny. Yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering whether, because if he said she was wearing them on the day she went missing, if he kept the diamond and that was the one he kept giving to people. It seems like something he would do. Yeah. But I also feel like they would have looked into that, don't you think? I don't know. Not if they, like, don't have any other evidence on him. Yeah. In any case, we do know for a fact that at least three of these fiancés got the same ring. And the same ick. And the same icky dick. It became a joke amongst his friends. They used to say, who's Bob marrying this week? Because he would also get engaged pretty quickly. So other women spoke to author Kiernan Crowley about dating Bob. And a lot of these women left him before he even had a chance to get down on one knee because he would blow up into temper tantrums about the smallest thing. Like a woman he was dating accidentally broke a glass at his house while she was cleaning up from dinner. And he was like, that was one of a set. It's irreplaceable. And he was like screaming at her. And it was came out of nowhere, which was the same reason why Dr. Stone was really worried about Gail is because the explosion of temper over something very small is very concerning. Mm -hmm. So she left him. There was another woman he was engaged to that took him home to meet her parents. I think he might have like, yeah, he was like had gotten the ring on her finger. And the dad was like, why is a nice, handsome Jewish doctor like you still single? 
were you married before? He's like, yeah, I, I was, but my wife just left. And they were like, well, what happened to her? And he's like, I don't know. She just took off. And her father was like, you're not marrying this guy. Good for him. Good daddy. Good daddy, yeah. Well, in the summer of 1995, Dr. Bob finally hooked a fish. Her name was Dr. Janet Cholette, and she was bright. She was a very qualified gynecologist. Before living in Vegas, she had lived in L.A., where she had actually helped write scripts for medical dramas like ERs. Like, she had been the consultative doctor for the scriptwriters. The two bonded over Bob's charity mission trips and their distaste for managed health care. And they were engaged within three months of meeting. Wow. So within three months, they're engaged. And not only that, they decided to move to Minot, Nebraska, because that is where Janet's brother, who was also a doctor, was practicing. And there was not only not any managed health care there at the time or very little, it would be also a place where they would have very little competition. Obviously, in Vegas, you're going to have a lot of plastic surgeons. On the 2020 episode, they said at the time that Bob moved to Nebraska, he was one of only four plastic surgeons in the state. Yeah, I could see that. The only hiccup occurred when Bob had to request Gail's death certificate in the mail because he had to prove that he was not being a bigamist, that she was, in fact, deceased in order to get married to Janet. Well, Gail's death certificate arrived in their Vegas home by certified mail. Janet was the one who received it and signed for it. So, of course, she opens it up, and she sees that this man she's marrying, his last wife, the wife he told her had disappeared, just walked off, it says that she is definitely dead, and the cause of death is homicide. Now, we have not had to come up against this red flag very often. No. But I would say if you're about to get married to a guy you've only known for three months, and then you get a certificate for his last wife in the mail that says she died of homicide, that is like a gigantic, gigantic, very rare red flag. That is like the white rhino of red flags. Yeah, so she said, let's do this white rhino, and she married Bob. No, she did not. She did? No, she did not. I mean, he must have talked her into it somehow. I don't know the, the ins and outs of how that conversation went, but he must have said, well, they're just assuming it's homicide. They don't know. Uh... I don't know. Maybe Janet knew. Who knows? Maybe he's like, look, we got into this terrible fight. She attacked me and it happened. I got away with it. Let's move on. I mean, I doubt that. But they end up getting married on June 23rd of 1996 in Ithaca, New York. So while Bob was celebrating his new wife and new beginnings, the Katz family was suffering greatly. Both of Gail's parents had passed away. Elaine said of heartbreak, the grief and the questions and the lack of justice had taken a toll on the elder Katzes, and they had both succumbed to cancer. I mean, it really does take a physical toll on you. Yes. They were laid to rest next to their beloved daughter. Kieran Crowley wrote this about this moment at her mother's funeral with Elaine, and I felt it so viscerally. 
He wrote, Elaine was filled with a consuming, burning hatred for Bob Bierenbaum, whom she blamed for it all. Bob was killing her family one member at a time. So Bob was out there living his best life. He moved to Nebraska. He became a local hero in Minot after a tiger at a fair attacked a child. And Bob was able to reattach the child's eye and save his face. That's why you don't have tigers at a fucking fair. Yeah. Just don't do it, guys. Don't have tigers at a fair. They're not supposed to be have people line up to pet them. It's not a great idea. But he's on the 2020, the dad of the kid. And he's like, oh, he saved our life. He's a great guy. In the book, The Surgeon's Wife, there was another account of a man who was, I think, putting in like a, one of those giant like underground pipes for sewage or something. And it fell and rolled down a hill and smushed his leg underneath it. Oh, the way you said smushed really got me. Yeah. And then hours, it took hours, obviously, to get this thing off of him because of they had to use heavy machinery and he's it's like just crushed. And when he got to the hospital, they were like, we're 100% going to have to amputate your leg. And he was like, you'll just have to kill me then because I can't do my job. I can't do this. I can't do Just kill me if you're going to amputate my leg. And he was like, it's only because of Dr. Bierenbaum that I saved that leg. So he is becoming this local, beloved plastic surgeon who's just saving people left and right. And he's a good guy. And he's still going to Mexico and doing his mission trips. So everybody thinks this is the best guy in the whole world. And then in November of 1998, Janet gave birth to their baby daughter. And now he had everything he had ever wanted in life. Because a lot of women also said that they had broken up with him because he wanted to have a wife and have a child immediately. And they got the sense that it did not matter who it was. It was like he just wanted those things. So now he has a thriving practice. He has the affection and adulation of all of these people who think he's just so great. He has a loving, professional wife. His wife was a gynecologist, but she was actually going back to law school at that time when they had the baby. So he has this brilliant, professional wife. And he has a baby. And he had literally gotten away with murder. But, Andrea, we know that the karma fairy always gets her man. She does. (laughs) she'll serve forever (laughs) she will unbeknownst to dr bob across the country gail's cold case was heating up i want to just see like elaine riding in on a unicorn with like (laughs) (laughs) with like flamethrowers yeah well chief investigator andy remember him from back in the day manhattan's da's office oh i remember so he was about to retire and he had closed Every case he had worked on. He was a bulldog. And Elaine was described as a pit bull. So they're a match set over here. And he said that in the 12 years since the case had been closed, he had thought about it almost every single day. He was like, I cannot retire and let that doctor get away with the perfect murder. So he called Elaine and he said, how would you feel if we reopened her case? And she said, great. Of course, this is all I've wanted for. Let's get justice. And he's like, and she goes, you know that we found her, right? And she's buried. Andy was really pissed because no one had told him. The NYPD had not communicated to the Manhattan DSA's office that there was a body part found. Wow. So he's like, well, this is huge. But before we indict Bob, because we can now that we have a body part, 
we have to double check that it's actually Gail's because now it's been 12 years, DNA has advanced. And this was really hard on Elaine because this is where she had buried her parents next to her sister. And now they're going to be disturbing the whole family. Also, in the back of her head, I'm sure she was thinking, what if it's what not? What if it's not Gail? What Pandora's box are we opening here if it's not Gail? But you have to do it. You've got to do it. You have to. And of course, she wanted justice for Gail more than she wanted what was buried to be Gail. So she agreed to have Gail exhumed and DNA tested. And unfortunately, it was not Gail. Jessica. I know. How are you doing me dirty like this? Could you imagine how they felt? I mean, this is terrible, obviously, for quite a few reasons. Number one, without a body, again, the defense attorney can just say she's not even dead. So why are we even here? Obviously, this is terrible for the Katz family. And she's realizing that her parents were not actually buried with her sister and they didn't actually get to see their daughter laid to rest. But also, if you think about it, it's terrible for the loved ones of the woman whose torso it actually is who have no idea because they must have just thought that their loved one disappeared or was murdered and she was never identified, the person who belonged to this torso. Ugh. So there's another family out there wondering what happened to the woman they loved. Yep. So this was just tragic all around. However, investigator Andy would not let this deter him, and nor would Elaine. He decided to just go balls to the wall. He interviewed all of the women who had dated Bob afterwards because he was like, at least, I mean, this guy's a psychopath. He definitely did some fucked up shit in his relationships, even if he didn't murder cats and women again. Yeah. And they ended up talking to Dr. Roberta, who was the one who had moved right into the apartment two months after the disappearance. And she had some very interesting things to say. She's like, there weren't cats, but there were dogs. (laughs) On July 2nd, 1986, almost exactly one year since Gal had gone missing, she was still with him, still living with him. Roberta said that at two in the morning, a missing persons detective called the house to say that they had reason to believe that they were holding a woman who was Gail. And she was at Port Authority and that they needed Bob to come right down to identify whether or not it was his wife. Okay. And Roberta was like, oh my God, this is crazy. But she said that the weirdest thing was that he was like, oh, well, do I have to come down now? Can it wait? Can I come down sometime tomorrow? And even the detective who called him said he had never gotten that response from a loved one. Everyone else would be like, oh my God, of course, this is crazy. How is she? What's going on? I'll be right there. Yeah. And he was like, can I come down during like daylight hours tomorrow? I really don't want to come right now. And he just sounded like it was more of a nuisance to him than anything else. Wow. And then the detective said, no, sir, you have to come right now. So he gets off the phone and he's telling Roberta what's going on. And she goes, oh, my gosh, like, well, should I leave? I mean, what if you're bringing Gail home? She's going to want to come home to her apartment, I'm assuming. So I can't be here. I got to go somewhere. And he said, no, don't worry about it. It's definitely not Gail. Uh, sir? Yeah. And that was the moment that Roberta was like, 
and how did I get here? It's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's Elmo's world. Yeah, it's Elmo's world. <laughs> but also, like, how the fuck do I get out right now? So she's, she's really smart. She's also a doctor. She's like, look, I need to gather some evidence. I need some scientific evidence. I'm not just going to, like, maybe he's just, it's the middle of the night. It's weird. So she tells a friend about this. The friend is also a doctor. The friend's like, that's fucking weird. Like, maybe he really killed her. You have to, like, entertain the possibility that he really killed her. How else would he know that that woman at Port Authority wasn't Gail? And he wasn't even upset about it. When he got home at, like, 3.40 in the morning, he was like, wasn't Gail, went to bed. If he had had his, like, heart up and your long-lost wife who's been gone a year, even if you don't like her, your heart would be in your chest. If I, like, get a text message from an ex I haven't heard from in a decade, I'm, like, talking about it with Nathaniel because I think it's weird. <laughs> yeah. So she thought it was all strange. Her friend asked if she could look in his flight log. She was like, maybe. I don't think that investigator Andy was talking to these women, too. So they came to the same theory and conclusion on their own. Wow. Yeah. So she went into his flight log and she saw she went to the year of 1985 and she said there was a date that was written in one color ink. 7785, the day that Gail went missing. And then he had gone over the first seven in a different colored ink to make it an eight. So it was August 7th instead of July 7th. Well, for you Euros, you must be very confused. But yeah. <laughs> I know it's different. So she's like, shit, he changed the date. He was trying to cover up the fact that he was flying on July 7th. So she's already kind of like, one foot in the door at this point because she thinks everything about this is weird. And so one night they had had some drinks. They were out at a restaurant and she was mad at him about something else. But of course, this is weighing in the back of her head. And she decided to just drop the hammer. She was like, I'm going to talk to you about something. I think you killed your wife. So according to Kieran Crowley's book, this is exactly what she said to him. She said, well, I have a theory as to if you had done something to her, how you may have done it, Roberta told Bob in a defiant tone. So he looked embarrassed, she said, because they were out at a restaurant, so he doesn't want anyone to hear this. And so smart for her to do it at a restaurant. Yeah, around people. She said, well, I think that if you did this, as some people seem to think you did, and if it really happened, perhaps something happened in the apartment and Gail was hurt. Roberta said that she deliberately used the word hurt rather than murdered. Mm-hmm. She said Bob just stared blankly at her, and she just went on, looking him right in the eye. She said, you could have put Gail in one of those big flight bags as she was so small and put her in the back of your car and driven her out to the airport and put her on the plane and then thrown her out of the plane. She said she waited for his reaction, but he gave none. He just finished eating. So she said at the time she was disappointed, and she thought maybe he didn't react to the provocation because he wanted to deny her the satisfaction of getting a rise out of him. And she thought perhaps that he would become upset that she really believed that he was a killer. Or maybe it would trigger something and she'd see him actually get violent and then she'd have confirmation. But all he had done was stare at his plate, and she realized later on that he had not denied it. She thought, why didn't he deny it? So she told all of this 12 years later to Chief Investigator Andy over here. And she was living in, I think, North or South Carolina at this point. And she was like, I will come for the trial. You indict him. 
you put him on trial. I will come. I will be your star witness. She's all in. She thinks he did it. So Bob's disbelief that Gail had been found alive to Inspector Andy demonstrated the best evidence that he knew she was dead. And this witness saying that was enough. So he's like, you know what? I think this is the best we're going to (laughs) get. Let's indict him. We've got Roberta. We've got the 1983 police report about the choking incident. We've got Dr. Stone's 1983 letter to Gail. We have the falsified flight log now, thanks to Roberta, which they were able to seize. So we know that he lied about his alibi. We've got the records of him being at the place where he rented the airplane. And that is enough to arrest him for second degree murder. Great. The judge, who, by the way, was a very glam babe by the name of Leslie Crocker Snyder. She's like, 58, but looks 38. It's like Justice J-Lo over here. She would not allow Dr. Stone to testify. So that's a bummer because this would break doctor-patient privilege, even though there was a Tarasoff warning. So that actually set legal precedent that she would not let him testify. However, she said that Elaine, and I think one of Gail's friends as well, had seen the letter, they'd read the letter, they'd heard about the letter from Gail, and that they would be able to testify to the letter. Okay. Now, Elaine has the letter because she has all the evidence. And she tried to get it. She's a lawyer. She tried to get it admitted. She's like, I'd just like to read something right now. And they're like, no. (laughs) So she's trying to get it in, even though it was not allowed in. But she could describe it perfectly. So it's still kind of getting in. The trial kicked off in the fall of 2000. And Andy, I got to tell you that there is absolutely no way you would have made it onto this jury. They automatically excluded anyone from the jury who said yes to the following question. Do you own a cat or are you a cat lover? You could say yes now. (sighs) Meow. You are excused. (laughs) No cats may serve on this jury. I mean, if that doesn't lay the cards out on the table, I don't know what does. Right? Well, despite that, no cat murder testimony was allowed in. So they weren't allowed to say anything about the cats. They were just protecting, covering all their bases. Just in case, because they said maybe one of the witnesses would accidentally say something. And even though the judge says strike that from the record, it's not like you can take it out of the jury members' heads. Yeah. Like, remember when they strangled the cat? (laughs) Remember when he killed her cat? Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to say that. Never mind. Whoops. Well, this was an insanely hard case for the prosecution to win. They admitted in their opening that they had no murder weapon, no bloody clothes, no fingerprints, no forensic evidence whatsoever. But they did intend to prove that Gail was indeed dead and it was Bob who had made her that way. They called on the jury to use their logic and common sense in determining Bob's guilt. They presented 34 witnesses ranging from Elaine, who could speak to Gail's thoughts and mood, to her personality, to the letter from Dr. Stone, also Roberta. And speaking of, I know earlier you asked the question of, was it even possible to fly a plane while you are also dumping a body? And they did do a reenactment and they got some great video. It's on the 2020 because they had two planes go up. So they actually had one plane filming it. And the guy put 110 pounds of weight in a flight bag And he said it was shockingly easy to open the door and get rid of it. Wow. Okay. In fact, they did it a couple ways just to test it. He could put it out either the passenger door or his door very easily. Okay. You can actually see on the 2020 the the bag going into the ocean. 
not very nice for the fish. <laughs> no, maybe they got it. Maybe there's a boat underneath. Probably not. Probably not. Well, the defense said, look, all they have is a theory. They don't have a shred of evidence. Nothing that would rise to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And they're correct. I mean, it's true. They also produced a witness named Joel Davis, who claimed to have been in a bagel shop on the day that Gail went missing and said that she was alive and well at 3 p.m. that day, far after the authorities thought he murdered her at 11. So this was their big bombshell witness. But on cross-examination, the prosecutor asked Joel what Gail looked like. Describe the woman you saw. And he said, well, she was beautiful. She was tall, very statuesque. She had a very large chest. And the prosecution put Elaine up as a rebuttal witness and a picture of Gail in a bikini and said that she barely filled up an A cup. There is no way. And she's like 5'2 or 5'3. So she is 100% not the same person that Joel saw. We really think they would have prepared this witness a little bit better. The next day, the New York Post published the following headline, Slay Case Doctor's Sole Defense Witness, A Bust. Oh, my God, no. Terrible. You said that was the New York Post? Of course it was the New York Post. Well, despite the absolute annihilation of the only witness for the defense, the defense finished pretty strong, reminding the jury that the burden of proof lay with the prosecution and there simply wasn't any proof at all. If the jury wanted justice for Gail, truly they should vote to acquit so that the case would remain open and Gail's real whereabouts or real killer would someday be discovered. Ugh. They got a point. But the prosecution responded to that with their closing arguments in which they said, the fact remains that every piece of evidence in this case points to the defendant. He's the only person in the case with a motive to kill her. He's the only person that has in the past displayed a capability to harm her and intent to do her harm. He is the last person to see her alive. He has, I suggest to you, an even stronger motive when she is dead to get rid of her body, as well as the ability to dispose of Gail's body. Circumstantial evidence goes beyond the reasonable doubt that he is the only person on the face of the earth who could have killed his wife. There is no other inference to be drawn from the evidence. You don't need any scientific evidence. You don't need any forensic evidence to know to a certainty that Gail Katz is dead. The evidence is simply overwhelming. After five and a half hours of deliberation over two days, the jury returned their verdict. What do you think they said? Not guilty. That's what I thought, too. But they said guilty! Yay! <laughs> I mean, everyone was shocked. Even, so Steve Katz is Elaine and Gail's brother. And it was just the two of them holding hands. And they were fully prepared. I mean, they were hoping for a guilty verdict, but they were like, Look, at the end of the day, the damage is done to his career. Everyone in the world knows what he did. They just, if they know that he got away with it because there wasn't enough evidence. Like, they were, like, just being like, this is good for us no matter what. It's justice for Gail no matter what. And then they just burst into tears. I think that's a good attitude to have, considering. Yeah. And, I mean, I think the prosecutor probably prepared them because, I mean, if I was on this jury... I wouldn't know if I could really say that he was guilty. I mean, there really wasn't any real evidence. Yeah. And they had to have everyone agree. It's shocking. I mean, they ended up, these prosecutors became experts in how to prosecute no-body cases afterwards because this was so crazy that they got the guilty verdict on that. They got the conviction. So in light of the good works that Bob had done throughout his career and because it was second-degree murder, because they obviously could not prove that this was premeditated at all, 
Bob was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He maintained his innocence. He showed not one little lick of remorse. He never apologized to the Katz family. And for over a decade, Bob appealed unsuccessfully to every court in the land. And then in December of 2020, at his parole hearing, he made a stunning confession. He admitted that he had, in fact, killed Gail 35 years after he had taken her life. And he said that he did it in exactly the way the prosecution and investigator Andy had theorized. And Roberta. And Roberta. He had strangled her to death in their apartment, transported her to the airport, and pushed her out of the plane. The prosecutors were stunned 35 years later that they got it completely right. He said, quote, I wanted her to stop yelling at me, and I attacked her. I strangled her. I went flying, I opened the door, and then I took her body out of the airplane and over the ocean. Bob went on to say he killed Gail because he was immature, and he just did not know how to deal with his anger. Wow. The parole board said, Sir, you are 29 years old, and you were already a medical doctor, a surgeon at the time of Gail's murder. How immature could you have possibly been? Needless to say, they determined that Bob was still a danger to society and parole was denied. Uh, His next parole hearing will be, I believe, in this September, September of this year. So we will see. I mean, it's generally better for the murderers when they admit to their crimes, which is maybe why he finally confessed and they expressed remorse. But I am still not seeing a lot of remorse in that communication. Though Gail's life was cut short, it has been extremely impactful to so many. Elaine Katz founded the Pace University Women's Justice Center, which provides free legal services to victims and survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and elder abuse. The center has been dubbed Gail's House, and Elaine founded it to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of domestic violence. She said, Gail's house gave my sister a resting place. I feel my sister's spirit here. It is warning others. It is inspiring others. Good. Oh, I could cry. It's always so powerful when people take such horrible events in their life and turn them into something that helps so many people. I know. It's unbelievable. Elaine is quite the inspiration. Somewhere up there, her parents must be very proud. I'm sure they were proud when they were alive, too. It was just too much. Yeah. Well, we made a donation, Andy, to the Pace Women's Justice Center and Gail's house. And if you would like to as well, we are going to put the link in the show notes and we'll probably throw it up on social media too as well. So in conclusion, maybe going on an airplane is not a great first date idea with a man that may or may not be a homicidal maniac. Yeah, you just met him. Let's not. Also, I think don't fuck with cats. (laughs) The name of a documentary? True, and also don't fuck with the cat's family, so it works all around. And the tigers. Yeah, and also tigers, definitely not. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love y'all. Bye. Thank you.